Tonight, I'm going to show you uh, how glorious the Bible is with prophecy. Many people don't understand the seven seals, and they think it's mis mysterious. And I've heard some really odd interpretations of this particular presentation. But let's pray together and ask the Lord to lead us. Heavenly Father, as we study your precious word and these uh, wonderful seals that you have revealed in your holy book, we pray that you will bring to us that blessing which you intended to give to those who would read it and study it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please remember that in Revelation, in verse 3 of chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 3, there is a blessing pronounced. Notice what it says. Blessed is he that, what? What's the first word? Readeth. Do you see that? Verse 3. Notice then it says, and they that, what? Hear. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3. So the blessing is pronounced on those that read it. Number one, those that hear the words, which means they pay attention and take heed of it. And what else? And keep those things which are written herein. So that verse itself contradicts any notion that the book of Revelation is a mysterious closed book. Because if it says, blessed are ye, are those that read, that hear, and that keep. You could not keep if you could not understand. Does that make sense? Therefore, just that verse makes it plain that the book of Revelation is an open book. In fact, the word revelation means to unfold, to reveal. So if it's to reveal, how can it be a closed book? So we then have to be careful, however, to make sure that we follow its intent. And that is that God wants to give us a blessing through it. Now notice, number one, the seven churches are introduced in chapter two and three. We will not go through the seven churches tonight. But the seven churches cover the internal factors affecting the Christian faith. The what? Internal factors. Now the Bible is concerned, God is concerned about the things that affect you from the external as well as from the internal. Because there are external issues that can or compound your spiritual life. And there are internal issues as well. So God reveals through the seven churches those internal problems that existed within the Christian faith that were elements that could cause people to lose their way. Is it possible to lose your way inside the church? What's the answer? Yes. It is. And so God reveals those particular things that are internal. Then the seven seals deal with those things that affect the church externally. In other words, the external elements that are out there that have an impact on, the, on your faith. And you and I know that we, if we're Christians 
or we're trying to be Christians, that there are environments that are hostile to the spiritual life. Is that true? Sometimes when I got, became a Christian uh, and I told the comets and Bill that I no longer wanted to perform and keep in show business, they thought I would lost my mind. I mean, I was 21 years old. So they thought I had gone. They used to go like this. Any of you remember that? Yeah. Okay. So, then I got drafted and got doing the Vietnam War and was taken in to the army and all the environment that I was exposed to all the time was just hard on my, my spiritual life. Um, fortunately, the Lord kept me faithful, but nonetheless, uh, it was difficult, especially in the Quonset huts. Quonset huts were very small buildings, and uh, those fellows, their language and their music, etc., was just, they would play these uh, jukeboxes that they had as loud as possible to compete with the other soldier who had his jukebox. So all these jukeboxes were playing with all sorts of wild music. And so many times I had to leave, even if it's 50 below zero where I was in Korea. So many times I had to leave and go outside and enjoy freezing rather than enjoy dying spiritually. And so external factors. And then the seven trumpets reveal the political and military factors affecting the Christian faith. But so tonight, I'm going to deal with the seven seals because uh, they deal with those external factors. Now, remember that Jesus says that uh, he said the things before they came to pass so that when they, they did come to pass, you might what? You might believe. So let's then consider the seven seals. We're introduced into the seven seals, by the way, uh, with the entrance into the uh, courts of heaven. In chapter 4, if you open your Bible now to chapter 4 of Revelation, uh, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Where? In heaven. And it says, As though God is, is uh, pulling aside the veil so that we can see what's taking place. Now, the, the scripture says then that there in heaven there was one seated on the throne, and there were 24 um, thrones with 24 elders that were redeemed from the earth. Now, I should hasten to say this, that we do not know who they are. The Bible does not reveal who they are. We only know that there are three people that are registered in Holy Writ that went to heaven. How many? Three. We know their names. One was Elijah, one was Moses, and one was Enoch. Okay, so it may be that three of the 24 are Elijah, Eli uh, Enoch, and Moses, but we do not know. So to say this is who they are, we cannot say. The important thing is to realize that there are 24 elders that were redeemed from the earth. Now, the reason why we're introduced into this particular setting is because something momentous is about to take place. Prophecy is about to unfold. And God is revealing to his children at that time the things that were going to come to pass that would have an impact 
physically upon them and mentally, the external factors that were going to affect the church. There was nothing more important to Christ than his church because the church was supposed to be the ground and foundation of the truth, as it says in the scriptures. And so the church then had the, 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 the command of Christ to go and win the world. And so since the church was the agency that God was going to use to bring the good news of salvation to the world, God had an interest in the church and in those external things that would have an impact on the church, as well as those internal factors. So it says here then that the 24 elders uh, are there, and every time that something special happens or something uh, extra special opens up, uh, they sing, holy, holy, holy. And that's in verse 8. Then chapter 5 uh, continues with revealing certain things concerning the uh, uh, what's happening. But in this particular um, chapter, it introduces a book. A what? A book. And uh, it says that this book is sealed with seven seals. And there was a strong angel that said with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seal thereof? You see that verse 2? Chapter 5, verse 2. And it says that no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. So obviously then, this was a sacred, sacred book. And it was, a, it was so meaningful that God would not allow just anybody to look into it. Fortunately, fortunately, did you hear what I said? Fortunately, there was one who could open it. And I should remind you of this, that the reason why you and I have spiritual understanding and have faith is because Jesus has linked heaven and earth together. Because of Jesus, we receive all of the guidance that is written here, plus the Spirit of God that enables us to understand these things, plus angels who are constantly working on our behalf. So there are more that are for us than, than there are against us. What do you say? So the scripture then reveals that no one could, and the Bible says then that John began to weep. Verse 4, you see that? He says, uh, I wept much. Why? Because he could not uh, open the book. Then uh, chapter 4 and verse 11 says that there's somebody who is worthy. Who is what? Worthy. And that somebody happens to be the lamb. But notice what it says. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And we know that the creator was who? Jesus. Now, when John heard that no one could open the book, he began to weep. Uh, and it says that I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within on the backside sealed with seven seals. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not! Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, have prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. 
In other words, John, it's okay. You don't have to weep because we found somebody. Well, who was that somebody? Well, it was the Lord himself. But he is called here the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when John looks to see the lion, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a what? He sees a lamb. And so it says, I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a what? A lamb as it had been slain. Who had, who was the one that had been slain? It was Jesus. And so now it's clear that there's only one prominent being in all of heaven that can open, take that book from the Father's hand and open it. And that is Jesus. Praise the Lord, what do you say? Now, the scripture then introduces us into uh, these typologies or these uh, symbols of Christ. And I should tell you that Christ has more than 40 different titles. More than what? More than 40 different titles. The reason for that is that in the old days, people were given names which suggested something about their character. Like, for example, Jacob was named Jacob because he was a deceiver. A what? A deceiver. Or not so much a deceiver, but a supplanter. Because what happened was that when he was born, he came, the brother came out first, and then uh, apparently Jacob grabbed his foot, right? And so that means then that Jacob attempted to come out first when he was not the first. And that the people then named him the supplanter. You're trying to take your place of your brother, but he was the oldest one, not you, J Jacob. But then his name was changed later on to Israel. To what? Is real. Before he was fake and then he became real. But listen. Jesus then had 40 plus titles. Which means then that his character is so great, so broad, so high, so deep. That one title is not sufficient for our Lord and Savior. Now. He came then and did what? He took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And now we are introduced into the seventh seal. The first seal is uh, broken. John sees a view of four horses being written by riders racing across the sky. And as he sees that, uh, the... Chapter 6 tells us, if you look at verse 1, I saw the Lamb open one of the seals, and I heard as it was a noise of thunder, and one of the four beasts saying, do what? Come and see. So, the four revelations, chapter 4 to chapter 5, and now chapter 6, lead us into the future of Christianity from the time of where John was. In those days, John was in an isle called what? Patmos. And who was in control of Patmos in those days? The Roman Empire. So that's why it says, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which what? Which are and the things which shall be hereafter. So we have a beginning point. We begin at the time of the church in the Roman times. It's wonderful to know 
that the church in Roman times was very, very successful in reaching thousands and thousands of people without what we have today, television and radio and, and uh, you know, internet and everything else. Without any of that, through the help of angels and the Spirit of God, those disciples were able to preach the gospel to what was called the known world in those days. In fact, Paul says that there were people in Herod's court who already converted, and in Caesar's court as well. So they were very, very successful by the help of God to advance the gospel. So the church was powerful, and it shows the church then as a white horse conquering. Notice what it says. I opened uh, when I and I saw when the land opened one of the seals, and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, and one of the four beasts saying, "Come and see." And I saw and behold a what? A white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. White represents what? Purity. A pure church, a pure message, a pure faith has been given, and that faith is conquering and conquering and conquering. The first apostolic church was a pure church. When Christ had established the church, there was no question that it was the church of God. The disciples uh, made it clear that their leader was Jesus. In every place they went, they preached the pure gospel as it was in Jesus Christ. Then the Bible says that a crown was given and they went conquering and to conquer. So it was a powerful, pure what? Pure faith. The white horse then, and by the way, the illusion from the Old Testament is found in the book of Zechariah chapter 6. We have no time to do that, but there are always allusions from the New Testament back to the Old Testament, okay? So it is, it, in Zechariah speaks about the, the horses that go to the four winds. Uh, the word spirit is used there, but the word spirit comes from the word ruach, which uh, more correctly should have been translated winds. In other words, the east, the west, the south, and the north. That the gospel went everywhere. And the gospel was, was pure at that time. It came right from the Creator's hand. And the disciples preached it. And then something happened. When he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse. And this horse was what? Was red. Now I know that some people interpret that the red represents that the church was persecuted and the blood of the church is poured. But this is not the church being persecuted. This is the church persecuting. Notice what it says. And power was given him that sat thereon to take what? Peace from the earth and that they should what? Kill one another and there was given unto him a great sword. In other words, what took place was this. When the church began, everybody was in harmony. Everybody believed the same doctrine. Everybody practiced the same practices. There was no discord, no differences with what they taught. And when their difference came, they got together like the council in Jerusalem and settled the issue and went and told everybody, this is what we all should do together. So the church was united. And because it was united, God could use it to conquer the world. 
But then Paul began, if you look at Galatians chapter 1, you will see that Paul begins to warn about another gospel. Another what? Another gospel. And he said, which is not the gospel. And then he says, if anybody preaches to you, if an angel from heaven comes to preach another gospel, which you have not heard, let him be accursed. And so their, their warnings began to be issued because there were people who were trying to come into the church to affect the believers to accept different teachings. And that's why in chapter 2 and 3, you'll find Jezebel being mentioned, you'll find Balaam being mentioned, and you'll find the Nicolaitans being, being mentioned. But these uh, typologies, the, the Balaams or the Jezebels and the Nicolaitans, were basically figurative in that they were used from the Old Testament allusion to the Old Testament to explain that the same things that happened with Jezebel and Balaam would be happening to the church in the New Testament. So the church began to be uh, affected and influenced by new ideas that were not in harmony with the original gospel. And when that took place, conflict was the result. And what happened was that because conflict took place, the very ones who were supposed to be the ones to reach the world and win them to Christ began to fight against each other. And history bears a light that unfortunately uh, the church began to falter spiritually because of these doctrines. For example, it shows the Nicolaitans there in chapter 2 and 3 and, and Balaam and Jezebel. But it begins by saying you have those that are there uh, and the Nicolaitans especially, which I hate. And then later on, they're inside. The Nicolaitans are inside. So first they're outside and all of a sudden they're inside. And what's happening is that there's an influence taking place coming into the church and the division has happened. Now, consequently what happened was that the second uh, church or the second face of the church uh, began to be a persecuting faith. They were persecuted, no question, between, uh, for 10 years, Diocletian and Nero from Rome uh, burnt people at the stake, threw them to the lions, etc. There was a terrible persecution for 10 years. But this is not speaking about what others were doing. This is speaking about what the church is doing and how the church is beginning to decline spiritually and turn to the sword rather than to the spirit. I remember I was in a certain uh, uh, legislature taking place in the Congress in New Mexico. And an issue came up that I had to speak uh, for. And as I was speaking, I remember that the... Uh, uh, congressman, the chairman of that committee, got frust flustered with me because he couldn't, he was trying to confuse me, but he couldn't because the Lord was helping me. And finally he said to me, Reverend Taurus, if everybody was like you, what, where would we be? And I said, in heaven. Well, he was shocked. And so were, the, were everybody in the, that Senate chambers. But the reality is that persecution 
was coming from these people sitting in that committee who were supposed to be Christians. They were trying to push an agenda that was not Christ-like. And because I stood up against them, then they tried to charge me as being some loony, uh, loony tune that was trying to uh, stop the, the motion going forward. Praise the Lord, that motion failed. And those, those poor senators didn't like me. But anyway, uh, the important thing is to understand that it is possible then that the church begins to be the persecutor rather than it being persecuted. That's what happened. Then the next uh, seal opens. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld and lo, a what? A black horse. And he that sat upon had a pair of balances in his hand. Now it's interesting then, from white the horse turns to red, and then it turns to black. In other words, when the church began to use the civil powers to enforce their dogmas, that's when the church was falling and began to persecute other Christians who wouldn't go along with the dog new dogmas. And what was taking place was, you probably remember a person like uh, the first emperor that became a Christian in Rome. What was his name? Yes, Constantine. And what happened with him was that he then decided that everybody should be Christian. So he would march his armies through the water and as they were marching through the water he would say baptizo, which means that they were baptized. So on one side they were pagans, on the other side now they were Christians. Is that how you become a Christian? No. So what happened was that that all of these pagans came into the church, but the people who understood the scriptures were uncomfortable with what was going on. And they became the minority, and the others became the majority. And so, the scripture says then that the face of the church went from pure to bloody, and now to what? To darkness. To what? darkness. Whenever a church decides to turn to the civil authority to enforce its dogma, that church is in a bad position. Because you cannot change people. I remember another issue that came up in that legislature. They were trying to pass a law to enforce Sunday as the day of worship for everybody. And they were using the excuse that they were trying to uh, Stop selling liquor on Sunday because our young people were killing themselves on Sunday from getting drunk and drunk driving. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I, I felt uncomfortable because I thought if I speak against this, it may appear to them like I'm for your young people getting drunk on Sunday. You understand? So they were putting me in a bad situation. So I prayed and I asked the Lord, give me wisdom. And the Lord did. And so I was able to explain to them. I said, look, I don't drink. I quit drinking a long time ago. I left show business, but the Lord delivered me from drinking. And then I said to them, but as ministers, we ought not to depend on legislation for morality. We ought to depend on the spirit of God to convert the heart so that the heart itself would choose not to do that, which is not good for them. You understand what I'm saying? And so, again, they were flustered with me because they wanted to, to pass this bill. But for, fortunately, it failed again. 
I was not a very popular person during those days. But I wasn't looking for popularity. I was looking for representing that which is correct and true from the scriptures. We cannot force morality. It must come out of the heart. What do you say? And when the Spirit of God is in the person, it changes that person and makes him a new creature in Christ. That's why it says, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? He is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And I can say hallelujah to that because I'm a witness of what God can do for the human heart. Because I experienced it. But listen. I heard a voice in the midst of four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the one in the oil. So that you understand the typology of this. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, the, uh, they offered uh, drink offerings and meat offerings. Meat offerings was a word which meant food offering. And most of the food offering was flour. What was it? Flour. Okay, so they call it meat offerings. And so the, the language has to do with Jesus is called the bread of life. Okay, so what's happening then is that the church now is selling the gospel. Doing what? Selling the gospel. Merchandising religion. And what took place was that as Constantine made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire, the highest position in the church was sold. And you can buy, if you wanted to be a bishop, you can buy the position if you had the money. And so merchandising went into the church. And because it went into the church, again, the church continued to go which way? Up and down. Because you remember that one of the things that Christ said to the, to the rabbis and the Jews, when he saw them selling the, the different things in the temple, what did he say? Get these things out of here. You've made God's house a den of thieves. But it should be a house of prayer for all people. So the church then continued and it became a compromised faith. But it didn't stop there. As, as Christianity began to become stronger and stronger, uh, it began to make dogmas and rules and regulations to force people into submission to these particular practices, which were not from the scriptures, but nonetheless they were using them. And the, the result is that the church then went into a different color. Notice what it says. And I looked and behold, in what color? Pale. When you think of somebody who's pale, what does that mean? They're close to death. I've seen people, I've been as a pastor visiting people who are saturated with cancer. Their skin is almost gray. Is that true? Pale, which means that they're very close to what? To death. So the, this faith of Christ, which began as a pure faith, continually went down, 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 until finally it became a pale or a dead faith. The power and power is given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. So remember that 
the Lord is predicting what's going to happen in the future. We are now looking as to what did happen in the past. So from Constantine then, the church continued to grow in power until it controlled all of Europe. Control what? All of Europe. It even controlled the Middle East until the Muslim uh, religion propped up. And it was that which counter, uh, countered the Christian faith. In other words, the Muslims went all the way up to Europe, to Germany, to uh, Poland, to Hungary. Uh, I, I was in Poland in, in the uh, place called Czestochowa. Anybody from Poland here? No one from Poland here. Well, where the Pope came from, John Paul, he was a monk in a little town called Czestochowa. And the parish that he was in is there and now is honored because that's where he came from. Well, there's a, a black picture, a picture of a black Madonna there. And it has a scar or a tear on the face. And the story they tell is that when the Huns were coming and trying to encourage into Europe uh, and they were fighting, that, that one of the Huns is a Muslim threw a spear and hit the, the face of the picture and tore the face. And so they were able to push the Muslims back and save the picture. But now what they're saying, because when I was there, I asked them, what's that tear? They said, well, that tear is growing, 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 growing. And when it finally reaches the heart, the end of the world will come. So I thought, well, that's an interesting interpretation. Because we all know, how many of us? We all know that the end of the world will come. The Bible reveals that. But listen. This faith then became a dead faith. Religion then began, began to be not something that came from the heart, but something that was just exterior. It became a, a formal religion. And people uh, did all sorts of crimes, etc., but they were still considered to be Christians. Christianity lost its power to change the human heart in that religion. And so consequently... As history reveals, Christ then warned that the church would have this decline until a period of time. So, when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they've held. Now, why does he use the word altar? Where is normally an altar? In a church. Okay. What is revealing here is not that there are people literally hiding under some altar in some mythical place. What it's revealing here is that it was the church that was responsible for killing the people. Who? It was the church that was responsible for killing the people. In other words, during the Dark Ages in Europe, where we all came from, whether you came from Poland or England or wherever you came from, if you came from Europe, during that time period, there was the Dark Ages and great persecutions came upon people who would not submit themselves to the formal religion of the, of the empire. And they suffered greatly. And it was a church that brought about, it is estimated over 100 million people were killed for the faith, for their not willing to follow the faith 
that was then the uh, main faith. And what it's showing is that while they're being persecuted, they're crying with a loud voice saying what? How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Now, this language uh, is also found in the book of Genesis, for example. You remember when Cain killed Abel? What did God say to, to uh, Cain? He, he said, what hast thou done? The voice of what? Thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. That doesn't mean that blood cries. We know blood doesn't have a voice. But what did it mean? It meant that justice was demanded. That what? Justice was demanded. And so, when these people were murdered for the simple crime of, of wanting to believe the Bible and not submit themselves to the formal religion of the, of the state, they were persecuted. They were called heretics, and consequently, they lost their lives. But they had a better hope. They had a what? A better hope. Because even though they were persecuted and burned at the stake and all that, they believed that in Christ they had eternal life. They had what? Eternal life. And they, were, they loved their lives not unto death. In other words, they were not afraid to die because they knew they had a better hope. And that hope was in whom? Jesus. In Jesus. And so, the church then persecuted. But it says, then the white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should what? They should rest for, yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. In other words, that there will still be more persecution to come. And what God basically tells his people is that even if you suffer, and Jesus said, even if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. And that's a wonderful hope, what do you say? Because all of us know that sooner or later we're going to have to go. Is that true? But if you have the hope, you can go happy. If you don't have the hope, Well, listen, people were persecuted, burned at the stake, and, and actually torture was actually made precise. These are all the torturing instruments that were used during the Dark Ages to force people into, into the known religion of those days. Uh, terrible things were taking place. There was a place uh, in, the, in, the, in Switzerland and in Italy, northern Italy, where some of the people who believed the Bible would transcribe the Bible by hand. They were called the Waldensians. What were they called? Waldensians. I, I, this, these are pictures that I've taken. I was there. I went to the little valley because I had heard about these people who suffered terribly because they wanted to only follow the Bible. Only follow what? The Bible. And that was their only crime. Uh, so here I am. You can see me there with my hand on my hip listening to this lady who uh, knows all about the Waldensian Valley, and she gives uh, guided tours there. Here's another place. This is the table where the young people would actually handwrite the Bibles on that table. And uh, these young people then would hide their Bibles in their, in their coats and all that, 
and go as merchants throughout Italy and throughout Switzerland and Germany, uh, risking their lives, but hoping they could find somebody they could share the Bible with. And sometimes they shared the Bible with the wrong person, they did lose their lives. Well, there were caves where they would hide, and the chief pointed into a cave down below, and uh, we went into that cave. I'm actually standing on the, on the place where the preacher uh, would speak to the audience down in this cave. Uh, unfortunately, this cave was known uh, because there were over 200 of these believers in there worshiping. And the uh, government, the military of, the, of that uh, state, which was Italy, uh, sent his army and surrounded them and just put limb, uh, timber at the door, set it on fire, and everybody was in there suffocated. Uh, people just suffered, suffered, suffered because the, they wanted to keep the faith of Jesus. Which faith? The faith of Jesus. And they knew that the only way to keep the faith of Jesus was to be faithful to the word. And so many, many suffered terribly. But to her was granted that she should be arrayed in what? In fine linen. While the world considered them heretics and, and rebels, heaven considered them saints. People who were faithful to Christ, who loved Christ, who loved the gospel, who loved the scriptures, and they would rather suffer and live out in the wilderness if they needed to in order to follow their faith. Then the next seal is open. In other words, we have been brought from the time of the Roman Empire all the way to almost to our time. Next seal, it says, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth as hair and the moon became as blood. Well, the stars of heaven fell unto the earth even as a fig tree cast of her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. Uh, this is interesting language because it tells us when the, seven, the sixth seal is open. When what? It is opened by an earthquake. By what? A major earthquake. Remember that? It says, And when the sixth seal was opened, lo, there was a what? A great earthquake. So a major earthquake affected that part of the world that, that where those people were suffering. And then it says, The sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. Then it says that the stars of heaven fell onto the earth, even as a fig tree. So these heavenly events would take place as indicators that that time, which we, would, which we call the Dark Ages, came to an end. And that ushered us into what we consider to be the last days. The what? The last days. Okay. Now, I want you to notice that the earthquake that hit uh, in Europe, which where all this had been happening, took place in November 1, 1755. I show the picture of the, that entire uh, place, uh, Canada, U.S., etc., because that earthquake actually shook all of those continents. It shook Africa, it shook Europe, it shook Greenland, Canada, U.S., in South America. It was a huge earthquake. And the center of it was in Lisbon. Where? In Lisbon. And it shook the earth. In fact, 
When, when that earthquake hit, people believed that the end of the world had come. People ran to the churches to find shelter, only to be lose their lives as uh, things fell. The churches fell apart and all that. It was a terrible thing that happened. Then in 1780, not too long after that, there was a day that was dark. There was no lunar eclipse or solar eclipse, but the day became dark. And history reveals then that it became dark during noontime. During when? Noontime. And uh, then it says that the stars fell. Now, please understand that that's language that suggests that some, some stars are falling, but stars don't fall. Why do I say that? Because the nearest star to us is the sun. And rather than it falling toward us, we would fall toward it. So what does this suggest? Well, uh, have you heard of shooting stars? Have you? All right. So what happened was in, the, in November 13, 1833, there was a huge, huge uh, meteorite shower that hit Earth. And the same thing happened. When the dark day came, people thought it was the end of the world. The cows went back to the barn. The chickens went to roost, etc. And people beat their chests, ran from the houses of the church because they thought it was the what? The end of the world. Isn't it amazing what happens when there are disasters? People become religious all of a sudden. Isn't that true? Okay. Some people call that a fire escape religion. But I'd like to say this. That at least you can give them credit that they know that at that point, there's only safety in God. But you cannot find God in just a, a split moment. You cannot all of a sudden say, all right, God, here I am. And that changes everything. There has to be something that happens to the human heart. You cannot just jump on the bandwagon just because you get scared. I've known a situation where people say, oh, Lord, if you save me, I'll follow you. And after the problem is over, what happens with them? They forget all about what they've said. But listen, this particular time, uh, notice a eyewitness, what he wrote. It was the privilege of the writer of these pages to behold the scene, and it was one never to be forgotten. They began to fall about an hour before midnight, increasing in frequency until in a few hours they became a perfect shower. They could no more be counted than one can count the fa fast-falling flakes of snow in a hard storm. They continued to fall without diminution of numbers until the dawn of day obscured them. And when the approaching light of the sun paled them in the east, they could still color the western sky. And when the spreading light obscured them in every direction, occasionally one of the great brilliancies would leave its trace into the west, showing that they were still falling. Jesus said, but in those days after the tri that tribulation, speaking about the dark ages and the great persecution that took place, the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be what? Shall be shaken. So listen. In conclusion, verse 14 then says, The heaven departed as a what? As a scroll. 
when they were all together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then it says, we are living in the what? In the time between what? Verses 13 and verses 14. In other words, those heavenly events already have taken place. The next great event to take place will be the rolling away of the what we consider the sky as a scroll. And when that happens, it means that Jesus is coming. What does it mean? Jesus is coming. Let me just share this with you. The last verses of that chapter says, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, the mighty men, and every bondman, every free man, hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains. And they cried, saying to the mountains, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. In other words, we have taken a stretch from the apostolic times all the way through the dark ages, all the way to our time, and the next great event is the coming of Christ. It's what? The coming of Christ. So whether you understand it or not, whether you believe it or not, the Bible bears record that there is such a thing as the coming of the Master. For me, at least, I rejoice in that because as I look around, things don't look very good out there. Do you agree with me with that? Uh, people are kind of nervous. They're uh, wondering what's going to happen in America. And as I travel around, people are wondering what's happening in the world. Things are not the same as they used to be. Things are different all over. What we used to count on, we can no longer, no longer count on. But we used to think, as the seasons came, we thought that they would continue on. Those seasons have changed. Things are different today, aren't they? Yes or no? Yes. And so, when the Jesus comes, when that last seal, I'm talking about the sixth seal is open, and it is clear that those events have already taken place, the next great event will be the rolling away of the heavens, and Christ descending. And those who have not been prepared will see him coming. And the only thing they can do is to hide from the one who came to save. Listen, we have a Savior. We have a what? But notice what is the last question that they pose. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who what? Who shall be able to stand? So the question tonight, we have swept all the way to our time and we know then that the next great event is the coming of the Lord. He will come. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power great glory. We are living in what is called the end of the world, or the end time. And some people don't understand that the way that God deals with it is that he gives a probation. A what? A probation. He allows time for people to realize their need and to turn to salvation. He doesn't want people to wait for the earthquake to hit and for people then to think that they could just run to the church and be saved. 
He wants people to understand that salvation is an experience. It's a what? It's an experience. It's a heart relationship with God. God wants you to love him, not because you're afraid of something, but because of all the great things he does for you and all how good he is to you. Listen, I'm thankful that God was kind to me because when I was in show business, I have to be honest with you, I was a raw heathen. I had no faith in God. I believed not in the Bible. I used to make fun of people who were religious. I thought they were loony. But then I realized when I had a conversion experience that God had been merciful to me all that time while I was in my hardened condition. And then I thank God that he didn't come while I was still in a lost condition. Some people say, why doesn't he come quickly? Well, I think that he should come quickly. He does say he will come quickly. But I'm grateful that he also gives us time to reflect. What do you say? Time to think about our condition. Are we right? Are we ready with God? I have a brother who... Uh, I used to tell him about the coming of Jesus. And my brother was, unfortunately, a criminal. He was always doing something wicked, something wild. And when I used to try to talk to him about the coming of Christ, he used to smoke his marijuana and puff it in my face. Just like that. Until one day, uh, this is his picture. One day he uh, shook me up because at five in the morning he came knocking on my door. At that particular time, he lived in one apartment and I lived around the corner from him. And he was just drenched with sweat. I had never seen him that way before. And I said to him, what's the matter? Well, he said, Louis, Louis, he said, I don't know if it was real, if it was a dream or what, but he said, I saw God coming. I said, what do you mean you saw God coming? He said, I was lying on my bed. And he said, uh, I saw a light in my window. And so I thought it was the police with searchlights looking for me. So I went down on my hands and knees and crawled to the window to see how many cop cars were down below. And he says, and as I looked down, I realized there were not police. There was nothing down below. And then I looked up, and the whole sky was ablaze with a bright light. And then he said, there were angels all over, flying everywhere. And then in the middle, he said, I saw God. And I said, what happened, Hector? He said, I realized I was lost, and, I, and I, I, I didn't know what to do. So he said, I ran down the steps, and as I was running through the street, calling for my oldest brother, who became a pastor, calling for him, Gene, 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 he said. The, the buildings were falling, people were screaming, cars were crashing. It was just bedlam, he said. And as I, and as I was running, 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 hoping that I could find shelter in, my, in Gene, I woke up, I was drenched, and he asked me the question. He said, Louie, 
What did that mean? And I said to him, it means that God is being merciful to you and telling you that you're not ready. But he wants you to be ready. Well, you know, he did not listen. For 25 years, we prayed for that boy. And finally, by God's grace, there he is behind my mother, the one dressed in white. He had decided to give his life to Christ and be baptized. Hallelujah, what do you say? He gave his heart to Christ. You know, that boy didn't fear anybody. He was the president of the largest Puerto Rican gang in New York City. I can tell you stories about him. But the greatest story is that he finally realized that God loved him. And that God had a better life for him than the horrible life he was choosing. Listen, if God had come at that moment, would my brother have been ready? No. And tonight, I'm going to ask you the question, if the Lord were to come tonight, would you be ready? That's the question. Or maybe I should ask it this way. Would you want to be ready? How many of you would want to be ready if the Master were to come tonight? I'm going to join my hand with yours. Because I believe that the greatest hope we have is not what we can accomplish in this earth, but what Jesus is willing to accomplish in coming to rescue us and take us home. I long for his coming, what do you say? No wonder the Bible ends with that prayer. Even so, come what? Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. And we realize that there's a, a great, great, great desire on your part for your children to be ready. You have revealed all those things throughout the ages. And we, you brought us down to the place where we're living between verse 13 and 14, when the Master will come. Lord, our desire is to be ready. So hear our prayer tonight. You see in our hands. Make us ready. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.